In this episode, I'm sharing an interview I did a little while ago with world-renowned animal behaviorist Jennifer Zelligs. I think you are going to really love her unique insights into the subject of animal behavior and training. She is a horse owner, but has a vast amount of experience with a wide range of species, and her current focus uh, is on sea lions. I just love speaking with Jennifer and watching her work with animals. She is, I think, a genius. <laughs> and while being solidly rooted in the science of it all, she's incredibly heart-centered in her approach. So here we go. Episode 56, Happy Horses with Jennifer Zelligs. Hi, I'm Karen Rolfe, and welcome to Horse Training in Harmony. This podcast is about you making progress with your horse in a way that you both can love. It's about learning how to move and be in harmony. Because yes, you really can develop a horse to be both athletic and happy. When we show up as our best selves for our horses, our horses will show up for us. So let's get started. All right, so welcome everyone to another interview in the Happy Horse series. And I'm here with Jennifer Zelligs, and she is a PhD and owner of the Animal Training and Research International. Uh, she is a world-renowned animal behaviorist with over 30 years of experience, award-winning presentations on animal behavior modification, and numerous publications to her credit. She wrote the book, Animal Training 101, a complete and practical guide to the art and science of behavior modification. And uh, this has been called the new industry Bible. Um, plus there's an online course that she now has that goes along with it, both of which I love and highly recommend. Uh, she's been, uh, I know this is the part where you just have to sit here and listen to me talk about you. <laughs> she's been on a, featured in numerous documentaries and television shows, National Geographic Explorer, even on Jay Leno, Dateline and NBC. And you're here with us today. So thank you so much. Welcome, Jennifer. <laughs> Well, that was a very nice uh, expose. Thank you, Karen. And I, I, I wish I could uh, um, say how much uh, I admire your resume and your spirit as well, but please take the heart of that back and uh, to all of you out there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> all right. So, um, you know, I had heard about you for years through our mutual friend, David Lichman. Uh, and I was so lucky a couple of years ago to be able to see you in action uh, in California with your sea lions. And mm -hmm. those sea lions seemed pretty happy to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, as you know, I do dressage and I do a little differently. I do dressage naturally, which is really about a partnership-based way to do dressage. Um, but I don't know if you know, but in the dressage rule book, it says that the object of dressage is the development of the horse into a happy athlete. Mm. So this is a subject that's actually really important, not just to me, but to this athletic sport of dressage. And one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you is because clearly you have expertise, but your methods are science-based and they're also very much relationship-based. And if it's all right, I would love to just 
say this one quote that I found in your story about Saki, mm -hmm. the wonderful sea lion named Saki. And Jennifer says, my relationship with Saki was the kind that inspired others to work with animals differently, to believe in the magical connection that's possible to develop with a constant and lifelong investment in kindness, connection, communication, and above all, consent. And that just speaks to me, and I know it's gonna to speak to the people who are watching this video. So beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it was a very special relationship. She's on the cover of the book, and yeah, I owe a lot to her in my career in some way. She was quite a very important inspiration for me as well. Very, very important. Awesome. So my first question on this has to be, you know, does, does the happiness of your animals matter to you? And is there a difference, probably wrapped into this, of there's not unhappy, there's, there's unhappy, there's not unhappy, and then there's happy. And how, where, you know, where do you live? And is there such a thing as degrees of happiness? And does it matter? Or is, uh, is not unhappy good enough? <laughs> well, uh, gutturally, there's only one answer to does the happiness of my animals matter? A hundred percent, it does matter. Um, I, I would say it might be a central guiding principle of my life, I, but I also feel that about your happiness and your students' happiness and my students' happiness. I, would, I, I am really pursuing um, the best I can, uh, increased happiness and welfare for everyone, everyone. And my idea of how to approach working with animals is to, is to just keep building towards hopefully more and more of that. The, the problem starts to become measuring and defining what that is. Um, which I think gets to your question of, is there degrees of happiness? Uh, what would you say the answer to that is for a human being? Do you experience degrees of happiness? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, the problem is, is that this is not something we can define. I can't plug you into a meter and go, oh, oh, you're a level 10. You're a level <laughs> eight. You know, I can't do it not even for a human being. So, I mean, there are objective things we can measure. We can measure certain chemicals. And um, how, how else would you say you, like just speaking about human beings for a second, what do we do? How do we measure someone else's happiness? You know, what's that kind of um, dynamic like? What would you say? Yeah, it's, it's tricky because I think there's, there's different flavors of happiness. And you know, maybe it's not a scale, but it's a, like I can be really happy sitting on my back deck and the sun is hitting me and there's birds chirping. It's just like happy. Mm -hmm. And then there's like joyous, oh my God, this thing happened and I'm going to be like this. And I, it's actually kind of hard for me to say whether one is if ah. it's this way or if it's just different flavors. Huh. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. Uh, in, in, that resonates with me and the, and there is a concept in Buddhism where, where there is sort of a depth and a breadth 
mm-hmm. to um, to these kinds of experiences, and and it's important, you know, kind of to recognize that that's the case. Um, and you can get to a point where you're overexcited too. So there's something where you can actually go round the bend and, <laughs> and get to the point where you're you're sort of either um, you're you're so happy, and what comes into your mind is a wish that it doesn't end. So in a way, you're like stamping on your own happiness. You're worried about losing the happiness. Um, and I bring this up because I actually see this in animals as well. Like really? you're like kind of. Uh, over at you know a sense of of uh, of happiness that is more about a worry that you're going to lose it like a contingent uh, happiness yeah well it's 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 uh it's probably coming from a sense that we all have where you know we're trying to maintain equilibrium and we know what it feels like not to have it and so then when you get it you start your mind starts to be like how do i hold this you know and and of course in doing that you actually crush it the grass thing yeah, yeah. um <laughs> and then i think there's also like a that that first happiness that you were describing that kind of like centered peaceful happiness that's more effervescent that's more calm to me that's the one that really feels very uh very you know uh fulfilling that's mm-hmm. that's a, a form a, a form of it so i think we can see at least I can resonate with what you're saying. The best I can say is that I can translate that to a certain extent to some things that I can see in others, both humans and animals. And we have no reason to believe that the architecture is grotesquely different. We are dealing with the same sets of mammalian characteristics. We're not talking about, you know, comparing ourselves to bacterium. This is, you know, mammals. They're having this, uh, the same kinds of motivational principles, the same systems, the, you know, kind of the fundamental neurologic structure. Um, a, lot of, a lot of what we've got biologically would line us up to be the same. The emotional systems are largely the same. So I think we can, we can extend with some level of um, uncertainty that, that probably uh, similar experiences as we have, they can have emotion. That's my guess. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and you know, thinking about those two kinds of happiness, the kind of contentment and the like, ooh, I hope this doesn't end. So there's like happy, but <laughs> um, I think about two areas of my horse's happiness. One is when I'm not around, and one is when I am around. So I want to feel like if I look out my window, or if I just think about where they are, I'd like to think that they have that contentment of like, yeah, this is good. That they're not, you know, trapped in the stall or something going, ah, I won't be happy until Karen comes and pays attention to me. Mm. Um, So there's this kind of level of, I want them to be okay if I don't show up. And then when I do show up, I'm, as, as you were talking, I'm like, oh, I wonder if when I do show up now, I want to be able to just be with them and enter that space with them and have them be like, yeah, I'm still really content. And look, Karen's here too. But I think I try to also elicit a little bit of like, what are we doing today? Um, which I don't think they necessarily will feel, well, maybe they do with each other when I'm not around. If they have playmates, maybe they play those little games of trying to get each other to play or something. Yeah, I don't know. I 
it's um, it's reasonable to expect and quite comfortable for me to to feel like there are that it's good to move between different states. Um, I don't think it's such a problem. There's a time for sleeping. There's a time for rest. There's a time for exercise. There's a time for activity. There's a time for socialization. And in a way, when those things, um, when you get, you can get too much of anything, really. It, it, you know, you can fall right off the edge by having too much as well. So our, our efforts are probably to try to keep things balanced rather than to control and dictate how someone else feels satisfied mm. um, or happy. You know, that, that's still going to be intrinsic and unique to them as individuals. And that kind of has to be respected. You can't like need them to be in a certain mindset. What you have to do is, I think, largely, um, you know, watch over that you're maintaining the balance in their welfare and then measuring it the best you can do by sort of an open-minded appraisal of where they're at and what might need to, what that suggests in terms of, of how you can work with their environment or, or as their companion to, um, to give them some of what they need uh, that maybe they don't have at that moment. So yeah. it does feel a little bit like, uh, a dance. I think there's a dance of life, you know, you, you, you're not in one state. Yeah, I, I love what you said about balancing and not trying to control and make them be in a certain state that's our idea. When I was talking to David Litchman, he really emphasized, you know, sometimes we want to go play and do something fun, but our horse doesn't think that that's fun or they that individual doesn't like to play on that level. And um, what's really fascinating to me, and it seems like the, the more experience I have, the more fascinating this is, is to, to know horses, but to know the individual horses. Mm -hmm. And really, this is what this horse looks like when they're content or playful, or this is what this horse likes to play with and what this horse doesn't. And um, that to me is really fascinating that I can change a little bit you know, I can calibrate myself to the different horses and, and this horse is like, boom, boom, like a Labrador retriever. And the other one's just like, let's just do this. And they <laughs> might be, you know, equally happy or content or learning or understanding and offering, but they have very different vibes and that we don't try to put on that. This is what a happy horse looks like. Cause another one might not, might not be that kind of bubbly or whatever it's manifesting as yeah I, I couldn't agree more strongly uh that one of the basic behavioral principles is that it's um it's so individual there are as many differences between individuals as there are between species wow <laughs> so you're really um yeah, you're really studying each individual and and working off of of that particular uh, past history, set of experiences, personality. There are kind of a number of things that go into how that individual relates. It's their certainly their hardwired species aspect, but they have their own you know cultivated history. They have their own genetic history. They have their learning experience, and then they also have 
where they woke up that day, you know, are they feeling a little something here or, you know, there's bird over there or there's a funny smell or, I mean, there's also the moment to moment um, of what's going on. And I, th I really, again, I think it's, it's just as you have to take other humans. I mean, of course, we're quite different and what inspires you and what turns you on is not necessarily the same for me. And that can be, yeah, that can be both inspiring or it can be um, a challenge sometimes. Yeah. 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 I think, I think in a lot of training problems that I've had, it's been me not noticing quickly enough what each different animal needs or what they're, what, how they tell me the stuff that they're telling me. So yeah. actually that brings me to another question of how do you, you know, how do you know if your horse is happy? This, this series started by a student of mine when my horse is going, well, Karen, how do I know if my horse is happy? And so I gave him some answers and I'm like, that's a really, like, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, because it's not just ears up is happy, ears back is not happy. Um, so, and you know, you work, you know, horses, but you also work with so many different kinds of animals. So I thought it'd be really interesting. Like, how do we know our horse is happy? How do we know your sea lion is happy? And are there any, you know, generalizations or, and even if you can't make a generalization, maybe you have some uh, examples of a particular animal and this is what happened. I was like, hey, I don't think they're happy. <laughs> or, or they, hey, they just got happier. <laughs> yeah. I, I think my first answer is, um, there is absolutely, I think it would be as dangerous to suggest there was an answer to this question that was universal. Um, yeah. it, it would probably be better to stay silent than to give an answer of how can I know. Mm. Um, I think what you, what, but, the, but the wonderful thing is that you're asking the question. Asking the question is, is the best start to this. Um, and so I think that's really like quite beautiful. I admire it very much. I think that's where you've got to stand and you have to be comfortable with the fact that you're really not going to have the answer to this. Yeah. Um, but I will give you, I mean, having said that, I'm not going to just be completely evasive, but I really strongly need to say that, uh, um, very, I, I want to say superficial answers like one's ears being up or I could say, so we made an equivalent with human beings. It would be smiling. Okay. Like smiling, but we all know there are various forms of smiles, right? And there are also fake smiles. Yes. There are frozen smiles. There are warm smiles. There are a lot of people who are thinking deeply or feeling a lot of emotion. They won't smile and it doesn't mean they're not happy. You know, uh, you can be crying and happy. Yeah, it's a very deep subject. Mm -hmm. um, and with the horse's ears, that's actually the, the way that they're exploring their world. I mean, it's even less linked to their mental state than smiling is. Uh, because they have to use it to keep aware of their entire herd and everybody coming to get them and everything else. So I, um, you know, I often think about that because there's such a, such a simplified answer that people use about the ears and they do it with the, with dogs as well. Or if your eyes look away is a big one with dogs. Um, and, uh, I always think about Michael Jordan, 
um, do you know this basketball player? Very, very, the most famous basketball yeah. player in the world. And every time, well, not every time, but he had this famous face that he would do as he was traveling through the air and making his giant slam dunk. He would go, <laughs> you know, and you'd see this like just gruesome image on his face, which if you took it as simply a snapshot, you would think this man was being tortured. And yet overtly, we know from his behavior that he chose to do this activity again and again. He practiced it religiously. He took a great deal of pride and uh, all of his energy was expended in this direction. So objectively, he was in some extent happy or he was absolutely choosing this activity, but there was not that manifestation because the manifestation was too simplistic. And that starts to be the answer is um so the first thing i look for i'm sorry it's quite a long-winded answer no this is great because what you know what i tell my people is like first of all this is just a best guess and we have to like admit like this is just a best guess like i don't even sometimes know my own emotions i'm still working hard on that you know (laughs) i love that and i also do use that example because in the horse world you know there's this pressure to like oh my God, all my pictures, the horse's ears better be forward. I'm going to get 10 million emails saying my horse looks tortured. And I, my answer always is go Google pictures of sprinters, you know, or pictures of lifters, you know, it's anguish. You know, if you just took the, (laughs) the face. So I'm right in agreement with that. It makes total sense. So, and I love that you set that up because it is a deep, this is a deep question. And I think if we just go, Oh, there's an easy answer. It really, um, yeah, it's way too superficial answer for such a deep subject. So with all that said, now you'll tell us how we know. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'll tell you how I approach that question. I absolutely do not know the answer. I don't think it's a knowable answer, but um, mostly I take the individual's uh, free demonstration of behavior Uh, I take their word for it in in that sense. So uh, in free space, does the individual choose to engage with me? Do they come over? Do um, Do they choose to participate in this activity or do they peace out? If they're peacing out, they're telling you, if they're avoiding, they're telling you something pretty important. I'm not saying that everyone gets to avoid everything. I have to, you know, do work that sometimes I don't want to do. That is an obligation of my life. I have to go the speed limit. There are things, but I, uh, for if, if I'm testing my relationship and I'm, I'm really uh, wanting to see where the individuals at. I really try to spend a lot of time, especially at the beginning of a session or at any time where. I'm uncertain about the connection. I really try to loosen up and see what is the, the sort of the free choice that is being expressed. An individual who with a concerted effort is choosing to engage in this activity, <laughs> then you should, you should guess that they may be very inclined to that activity and it's not for you to judge the look they have on their face. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I guess I say I take their actions to be an indication of where they're at. Mm -hmm. I love that. And that's what's, 
one of the things that's really helped me um, by watching you with your animals, because you're working with sea lions or animals that are loose, you know, and it's so different than uh, loose, the, no equipment. Yeah. yeah, I do a lot of liberty with my horses now, but that's not traditional. There's, there's, it's very normal in a normal dressage competition training barn for us to go from a stall, have a halter and lead rope. They're led on a short halter and lead rope, maybe even with a chain even over the nose, to the cross ties, then led out to the arena, and then ridden with short reins. And that's that horse's life. So, you know, how do we know? There's not much room for the horse to show you. The, the best compliment that a horse can often get is that they're obliging and a really good boy because they just don't fight that. And in part of my journey in introducing Liberty stuff and seeing where my horses go when you give them the choice, you know, here I am a fancy Grand Prix rider, I drop the reins and my horse is like, like really, <laughs> you know, or I go, you know, I go to lead them and I don't have anything on and they, they leave. So it's been very humbling to add in Liberty stuff. And it makes, it really makes you need to want to cause them to want to be engaged. And that's a whole other experience than the art of controlling a horse. And you can control a horse well, where they understand, and they they don't fight it. And you can say they're, you know, I don't know what the word is. They're, they're like, okay, I'm not fighting. But that can also, that can be levels of like, okay, um, I got it. No problem. I can operate in the system or they're in learned helplessness. But that um, giving them room to show you if they want to be there or not changes everything. I think. I, I guess that was a difficult answer. I, I should think more about my audience. I, there is a way to do this even online. So mm -hmm. I want to say that it doesn't, the, the, there might be degrees of this. Um, so for example, when I'm leading a dog or a horse or somebody by a, a lead, I, I um, stop, connect, kind of indicate that that were that I'd like to proceed forward, mm -hmm. allow this space to occur to see if they engage with that suggestion rather than implement any form of force. So you, even within the use of gear, you mm -hmm. can give a space that is a kind of uh, respect and um, a space for them to have a say. Yeah where you can hear them, like a, a deliberate hearing of them. Um, and then if, if they're distracted by something, you can decide what, uh, what level of engagement you want to incorporate that kind of feeling that they're having into what you're doing. Is there a way that you can both kind of have what you need in the scenario? Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes it might be to go over to a certain area that they want to go just to explore that for a second so that that's mm -hmm. released or, or maybe they, they have an itch and they need to do that first. Or, you know, I mean, there's, there's a space that you can provide even within the, the control of gear. I would say. No, and I, I love that you brought that up because that is really, I mean, that's what I do. Like I ride in dressage. It's like close connection. And, 
and that to not judge somebody's um, just by the equipment that they're wearing, because like you said, I can have a double bridle on a horse and be leading them, you know, with a halter and lead, but I still have the minds, I can still have the mindset of if they stop and go, can I look at that? I can stop with them and let them look versus just because I have this equipment on doesn't mean I'm going to be dragging you with it. So there's whether you have equipment or not, and then there's how you're using it if you are wearing it. So I, I thank you for making yeah. because I think a lot of people also grab onto that. Oh, she's wearing, has a bit on her horse. That means she's being cruel. Like, well, no. <laughs> and I, this is the world that I live in because I, I want my horses to be happy partners. And I do a lot of bridalists and Liberty, but I also ride dressage and it's, it's very, um, you know, condensed and collected on very close contact, but I always like it to feel like ballroom dancing. You know, that's, that's my ultimate. We're, we're, we're move we're agreeing to move together and finding that shared space. So. Yeah, that sounds really elegant. That's the goal. That's what I'm trying. <laughs> I do my best. I think, do you find also, so one of the other answers that as I'm specifically thinking about horses, and not just animals, well, actually maybe this does apply. Another uh, measure might be the overall kind of um, tension in the frame and the body and the eyes. To what extent are you holding your breath? This is an objective measure we can use with human beings. Mm. Um, and it can be used with animals as well. Tension um, often can be one of the most clear signals of, uh, of someone's kind of duress um, state. So if, if they're very, very tight um, and they're held awkwardly, mm -hmm. uh, holding your breath, uh, a certain set in the eye and the, and the jaw, this can, um, this can be a possible indicator. Uh, of course, it can also be necessary to do certain moves that you hold your body in a certain way but you should be able to see that toggle uh, between the necessary move and the immediate precondition and postcondition. And if you don't see it toggle, then they're not able to recover to a calm state, you know? So gotcha. the, the, the uh, sprinter is not like this at the, you know, <laughs> right afterwards. Right, they, they, let go. Yeah. they can let go, so. Yeah. Something I always say in my, my world is everything comes from and returns to relaxation. Oh. And, you know, there's a degree, hopefully, of relaxation during it, meaning you're agreeing to be there. But, yeah, that we can toggle. It's like, okay, we're start out, chill, come on, effort, here we go. I know that's hard. I'll figure it out. And then, and I find that is a good measure because when I'm done, you know, if I drop the reins and stand there on my horse and they're like, no, let's, let's, I got to walk. I got, you know, then I know, oh, there's some residual tension. So very cool. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, sounds really similar view. Yeah. So, um, I think about my individual horses and, you know, throughout my week or, you know, as time goes by, there's different training challenges and I, you know, I plan, okay, this is going to be a little bit of a planned push this week. They're learning something hard. Okay, now I'm going to 
pay them back, you know, and make sure that the, there's balance. At the end of the day, I always say, um, if my horse wrote a book saying my life with Karen, what kind of book would it be? You know, and for sure there'd be chapters going, oh, that was hard. What the hell was she thinking? You know, that'll be the title of one chapter. What the hell was that about? You know, but hopefully the book is like my great life, my great, cool and inspiring life with Karen. Mm -hmm. So in doing that, I know when I challenge my horses and maybe they're like, oh, that was hard or that was confusing or some degree of not as happy as they could be. I want to know things that I can do to kind of cheer them up or put stuff back, back in that relationship bank account. Hmm. So I was curious if you um, had certain things, even if it's with your sea lions, like, are there certain things that you do maybe with different individuals? It's like, well, I know they like that. Or I know if I do this, this, and this for a bunch of days, like now we're good again. Like what are the sort of, sort of things that you might do if you sense an animal needs to become happier? <laughs> well, that goes back to the idea that everyone's in, I mean, I think you alluded to it in the question. What motivates us is each quite unique and individual. It shifts from moment to moment. So I think what I'm hearing you say is that they're having too much of something that is sort of overbalancing the, um, and, and I know when I'm training, I really try to remember uh, many small training sessions. This is something that I think is very hard in the horse world because probably there's a lot of energy that goes into setting up for, for your training and your work. But the reality is as many small training sessions works better empirically for all of us than an intense, um, unrelenting experience. So if what you're feeling is that you've kind of, they're wearing out, um, can you, using the same window of time, can you break it into smaller chunks? Uh, so let's say you're gonna go out and work the animal for an hour. I don't know if that's possible, but that might be what you do. Um, and if you just went straight at that, you might have um, kind of an exhaustion and, and, a, and a point of diminishing returns. Um, but if instead you broke that into uh, 15 minutes of this, five minutes of something else, what would that something else be? I don't know. Maybe it would be like brushing them down or it would be working on a totally different kind of activity. Um, maybe not as much of a physical activity, more of a mental activity or maybe the opposite. Um, uh, maybe it would be go graze for a second in some delicious area of greenery or go smell someone and then go back um, to practicing. And I mean, I don't suggest that you want to interrupt the perfect moment. Uh, you're just at the edge and you're about to, to reach greatness and you give up and you know divert your attention. But I would say that, um, yeah, that the, the best learning is done in uh, lots of repetition of small units. And I see that that error is made quite a lot in working with horses, perhaps because of the, like I said, uh, the nature of sort of getting activated to do it. But uh, that's, I think that's the first thing. So um, we have a famous saying in, uh, in working with professional animals, just one more time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right so you've heard it too oh. so that's like the kiss of death 
Yeah. Um, if you're if you're tempted to say that, let go and come back because the next time you try it, it will be better. Um, and I think finding a balance, so whatever that sense is that you're feeling like you've withdrawn, what's almost like what is the antecedent? What is the uh, sorry antidote to that? What is mm -hmm. it that you've had too much of? How can you do the opposite? So it could be I've been too long in the stall and I need to run. That might be it. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's really where it's at. You know, it's not that just, um, it's not just a one note. So if I'm trying to give a personal example, well, that's what I felt with my horse a lot. Sometimes he just really wanted, he just needed to get out there and, you know, canter around and be, be him, use his body, feel it, you know, and then when that was done, it was nicer to snicker and, you know, maybe concentrate on simple extended targeting behaviors, get his hooves cleaned. It was very nice to mm -hmm. alternate between those conditions and maybe exploring new toys or new smells or, you know, there was, there was a way to go back and forth. So it was really, I was trying to, as a, as a parent would be, I was trying to find what the balancing agent was. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that your first thought was, why are you feeling like you're taking investments out of the bank? You know, like, look at that first. What's making me think that I need to pay them back? And how can I accomplish the same goal in a way that maybe doesn't deplete the account in the first place? <laughs> so. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. Yes, that's right. That's it. Exactly. I, I don't find I have to take withdrawals very much. Um, I do in medical procedures. There are times when you get your back up against a wall or there are times when someone simply must uh, cooperate and you can't explain it to them and they don't, you know, they just, they're not the human in the situation. They can't see what I can see. But most of the time, I can find an acceptable middle ground between the, the two needs, um, at least to progress forward in a way that is comfortable for both of us. Yeah. Nice. Love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think I just try to, again, look at my individual horses and know, because that sense of, you know, going out, your horse is like, I want to go for a gallop and to be able to see or feel like, oh, my horse needs that because it's going to make it happy and not just go, I think this horse should go gallop around in order to be happy. And it's a horse that would think that that wasn't very much fun. So, <laughs> it was like that feeling, right? You know, that how do we know we're guessing, but be there with them and, and at least ask the question and think, yeah. about, I wonder what would make my horse happy here. Yeah, it's tough because I mean, the other side of it, as you say that is like, what if it's fat and it really needs to exercise? And I can hear people suggesting that. And I, you know, I, and I wish someone would take care of me that way. <laughs> I know, right? I need to go out for a jog. <laughs> so there is, you know, there's a, a benevolent spirit that you have to take to this that um, isn't exclusively about the will of the individual nor your will. It has to be, I guess, from my point of view, it has to be centered in the right intention of the welfare of the individual that you're caring for. And I really kind of continuously make sure that I, as, as the caregiver in the situation, that 
my allegiance is foremost to essentially the well-being of, in your case, the horse. And I have to look out for that before my sort of selfish human intentions is taking over like a virus, the situation. So I try to stay to that, but that doesn't mean that my needs as a human, which might be to even just continue to care for these beings, or their medical or physical health or their mental health, I may know something that they don't know. And that may also not always line up with what they naturally, naturally go for at that moment. Um, and those two things have to be held very carefully. It's not, there's no formula to that. Um, you have to look in your heart and make sure that you are doing something about welfare and it's not just about, no, I really want this. Um, If you're having that feeling, you you know, the problem isn't with the horse. But if if you really do feel that, yeah, you don't want to run, but boy, you're putting on some weight and you're if you don't move your body, you're going to lose it. Mm -hmm. Um, If you feel like that, then you've got to try to find a partnership that that will work towards that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, Make it more fun, make it easier, make it more manageable, break it into smaller steps just as you would with a child that didn't want to go to school or something like that. Yeah. I, I have one of those horses that lives on air and she's huge. So I do <laughs> have to, and she's pretty like, she's good hanging out. Um, but so I do have some days where it's arena work and it's collection and it's hard. And I make sure that I, it's really highly rewarded. I mean, I really try to make it it's not just negative reinforcement, which horse people tend to use a lot. It, there's a lot of reward, a lot of communication. And then on days where I just want to do aerobic training, you know, I try to head for the field. So I'm lucky I have a couple different areas. But when we're going to do some conditioning laps, I go out in the field where she's, she's much more happy to go. And, you know, she doesn't know I'm exercising or to lose weight. She's just like, let's go look over there, you know. So that's much better than doing, you know, 20 more times more laps in an arena Mm -hmm. so yeah Yeah. there was oh gosh there was something else you said oh um just talking about the welfare there was another quote i found on your in your stuff and and it said um our principled approach must be to first work with the animal for their sake and second for our own objectives this way everyone's needs will be met and our connection will be mutual. And I just, I love that. And I know so many of your techniques with the animals you work with are so that you can do medical procedures and you can take care of them properly. And, and you know, in the horse world, I mean, we of course want that to go smoothly with our horses, but you know, sometimes people have paid a lot of money for these horses and there is a little sense. I know when I was in the competitive world of like, this horse's job is to perform for me, number one, because I spent $100,000 on it. And, you know, and I don't want to mean that they don't take good care of their horses, but there's um, a little different mindset sometimes. And to see what you do, it's like, the and with zoos, you know, the first goal of the training is so that they can be inspected and be given injections, you know, at freedom you know I saw the video of your sea lion getting how many injections and a tooth pulled (laughs) in in total freedom just you know on because of your relationship and your training it's when you when I see something like that I'm like this sea lion is 
is agreeing to have, you know, injections. And I, I'm, I hate shots. I pass out. <laughs> I would be fighting much more than that sea lion. But, you know, and have that tooth extracted. And then I'm thinking of, you know, all the times I, you know, like, wow, that just made me shift how I think about so many things that I do with my animals. Really impressive. Thank you. Yeah. What I would say about this $100,000 thing is I think that the the frame of the mind the, the the mind is framed wrong there so if i paid a hundred thousand dollars for someone else um my feeling would be i owe them a hundred thousand dollars worth of care this is i'm saying that this individual is worth a hundred thousand dollars so that that is to say i'm saying that their that their worth is all i can afford all I can afford. Um, they're precious. It's not that they, you didn't pay the whore. <laughs> they don't owe you anything. What you're saying is you acknowledge this incredible value in this other being, which means in a sense that you really, you owe them even more for that viewpoint, I would say. Like that's, and I'll tell you, my animals are really expensive, not to per, like they're all rescued, but um, but to keep them is extra, well, horses are very expensive as well, but uh, don't get into owning sea lions. Not that you could anyways, you have to be a professional, but uh, it's, it's a really difficult life support system. And yeah, the, the way that I look at that is that um, I owe that to them, not, not the other way around. Yeah, it's, mm -hmm. I, you've made this as a mark that that's what, you didn't pay the horse. It's a sense like you're paying the universe in recognition of the value of the horse. And now you have to make that true. They don't have to make that true. You, you're the one who put that value. Right. And to, and to pay them back as a whole being, not just as a vehicle for your own glory. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes yeah. these expensive horses are the, are, uh, I don't know, we say like bubble wrapped, you know, they're, they're kept as you would keep a classic car. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah. I know, wonder if that isn't a person who really wants a car and not a horse. <laughs> I mean, I, the, the issue is, that this is a being. And I guess you have to decide how you feel about it. But I would say most of the people that I work with and I suspect, well, certainly I can see it in yourself, you know, you have to ask, why are you doing this? What's your fundamental reason for doing this? Because if you want a really great mechanism for getting around, a car is probably better than a horse. Um, <laughs> if this is a perp, if your purpose is to you know, maybe it's a motorcycle if you want like a thrill ride or something, but you've chosen something that has a mind. It's a being. Mm -hmm. In a sense, it really, you know, it, it's a living being. And it, I, I'm, I, I don't know that you own it. I think you, you care for it. And, um, and, and I think that if, if you're looking at that, it's probably because you want a connection. Um, because otherwise a motorcycle will be better. If you want something that's just obedient and will do what you say and perform it a certain way, that's a motorcycle. It's not a horse. This is a being. Yeah. So, and I, and I know the people listening, chances are it's a 
it's called the happy horse interview series so i know that pe most of the people listening we're, we're preaching to the choir on that one but yeah. i do know i've been in those other worlds so you know it's worth saying because um it does happen and sometimes i wonder you know if people remember that it is a, they are beings and uh yeah i feel like all the money i pay to keep these horses it's just the payment that i i pay to to be able to be with them <laughs> you know it's like my price of admission just to get to be with them and so <laughs> i think that's clear yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i think that's clear yeah so oh, this is it's just such a cool topic it's i love what you said it's like a, it's a unanswerable unknowable thing but it's sort of fun to think and talk about it um have you ever had a, an, an animal that you worked with where you had to feel like you got especially creative or they were just unique in some way, had some weird thing that you needed to do to help get them, keep them happy? Or... I, I feel like that's kind of from time to time, every individual. <laughs> I mean, we all have our up days and down days. A lot of times also when you first start in a relationship with, with a new animal, the, the beginning periods can be quite rough. Um, I mean, I'm working with predators, right? So they can be very dangerous, uh, very disquieted. Their natural instinct might be to attack or, you know, or something quite violent, aggressive. Um, I was just at a zoo uh, teaching a workshop not that long ago and a rather extreme example was a lion um, who just had really learned uh, a kind of fear and hatred avoidance of, of human beings at an extent that they were ferocious and attacking the walls and could never eat in the presence of a person. This is an animal that had been in managed care for a long time. And uh, it was the male and the female was sort of trainable, but only in the, in, in the absence of the male, they, they were never able to be trained together or fed together. And uh, we were going to do a demonstration with the female, but uh, they failed to be able to shift the two animals apart. Hmm. So they get a vote and that was their vote. And, and they, uh, and what happened was about, I guess, 20 or 30 minutes where um, what I had to do was, um, so I have a philosophy of come bearing gifts, which might've been something you were expecting me to say, and I probably should have said, I, I think this is one way, come bearing gifts, you, you might recognize this phrase from, uh, well, gosh, it might be biblical. Um, uh, but the idea is to give first and take second. So it's part of the same mindset. Like that will increase the happiness of others. If, you're, if you've got a generous giving freely spirit. So in such cases, really extreme behavioral duress. Um, and this is true with human beings as well. This principle is called non-contingent reinforcement. It means you give without expectation. Mm. In Buddhism, we call it giving freely. And uh, it does work to start to change a number of the mindsets that uh, individuals who are having really uh, severe uh, psychological problems can, can start to find a way out of them. 
um, by engaging in approach, by maybe not having as much fear in the situation because there's just something that's being offered that's desirable. And we, we start with food because that's at least a universal, like everyone has to eat. So with this lion um, who would never eat in the presence of any people and was constantly attacking, I just, I basically went in and, and put my little meaty blob through the, through the uh, bars and uh, backed away and neutralized um, again and again and again. And this lion did not take the meat, okay? But over the course of 20 minutes, he quieted, 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 and the female was able to start coming in and eating. And she was starting to purr and huff and do the nice sort of mm, things, although she's still worried. Uh, but it became that I could uh, feed and train the female and the male could sit with us for the first time as a group and be okay with that. And this was just 20 or 30 minutes. Had I been able to do it again and again, I, I believe I would have been able to cultivate a beginning, at least where he would accept my gift, which to me would have been quite an accomplishment. But he did accept our presence, which was the first thing he had ever done. And he accepted it in part through mimicry, through the, through his, the female. And um, there was one other mechanism that I used, which was he, we had a large group of people who were in the class and, um, and their presence was alerting. And obviously, if one human is bad, imagine how bad 10 or 15 humans is. So what I did was, as he, whenever he quieted a little bit and lessened the tension, stopped screaming, you know, um, then we, the group stepped back a small mm. step, which you'll recognize as a negative reinforcement strategy. Right. Um, so in other words, I saw that we unintentionally were a negative stimulus and I lessened us to the extent that I could, but I was not willing to leave because of course then, you know, my agenda would not be managed and he would never be able to approach further. So we did those two things is sort of in a concert. Um, but I was very careful to control the crowd and make them very, very mindful, very, very quiet forbid any movement, any talking, just to try to, that was my reward to him is to try to find a place where he could be comfortable. And the fact that he could lie down at the end was, and he was there and I could train the female. Yeah, it was, it was an extreme example, but it's the one that came to my mind just now. No, that's, that's a really cool story. And something I really love about it is how you know, you were employing some techniques you can talk about, but it was all based around just being together, just being, and giving some, giving that gift to him. So it kind of comes down to as a very, it's not a technique, and you know, it is a technique, but it, it feels very just honoring of, you know, here's my being, here's your being, I'm giving you a gift. And, and showing you I want you to feel good in our presence. So that's kind of a, just a very beautiful way to start thinking about how to create more happiness. Yeah, there's a Buddhist tale that talks about this. If you want to give someone direction off of a mountaintop, 
you don't yell from where you are. You go to where they are on the mountaintop and then lead them from there. Mm. And that's a basic psychological principle as well. You have to essentially have to join someone where they are in order to lead them away. And that's a true principle in, in all of this work. These are yeah. just psychological principles. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. Well, that might be a beautiful place to <laughs> end. <laughs> yeah, great way to find harmony is to meet meet the horse where they are and see where you go from there. Um, so Jennifer, where can people find out more about you and uh, your horse and where's the best place to, to find out more about you? Ah, uh, well, I have a website called uh, animaltraining.us, www animal training and i can put that there I'll share it. wherever you're watching this video there's <laughs> probably there <laughs> yeah i i uh, i really appreciate your support and your um you're just really encouraging presence uh karen i think that the way that you're able to bring people together and and kind of openly to try to share and look for um you know, just advancing everyone. It's just such a beautiful thing. So I really appreciate that. Our, our website has a lot of links to um, things you can get, books and courses, like she said, um, and, and everything does go back. I, I run it as a not-for-profit. So everything goes back to our rescue program and we do research and, and uh, kids groups and beach cleanup programs and stuff. So it, it does go to a good cause and I, I'm grateful for the, for the support. The final thing I want to say is don't give up, you know, just like me and that lion. Um, you know, it might feel unsatisfying to have to go over to the other mountaintop, but it's a beautiful view over there. And if you just don't get upset, um, I think asking the question of, of um, whether someone else is happy is the, is the perfect place to begin. And you don't need to know the answer. Um, you're not going to know. And that's all right. It just I want to encourage your spirit. You know, I think I I feel a lot of people in the horse community feel sometimes this. Uh, I you know my needs, their needs. You know, I feel ashamed and don't don't know how to handle that. And I would just say that you're on the right path and just keep putting one foot in front of the next and asking that question is very wholesome and it, and I really respect it. So just. beautiful, beautiful. Thank you so much, Jennifer. If this episode resonates with you, make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Training horses is a long game. The more you listen, the more pieces of the puzzle you'll have. To see all your learning resources, visit dressagenaturally.net. That's where you'll find free videos, online courses, my book. You can sign up for my Wednesday Wisdom email or even book a private consult. Most of all, remember, you got this. Never underestimate the possibility for things to improve in ways you cannot yet imagine. Till next time, love your horse, move in harmony, and enjoy the process.